so we got to find out about this church through Matt as we uh, bought our car about, I don't know, six weeks ago or something. And we're actually going to drive back to Perth with that vehicle. Um, have, has, has anyone here ever driven from Melbourne over to... We got a couple? All right. So it was okay. So you made it. You survived. <laughs> it's a bit of a, it's going to be a, a bit of an experience for us. But it's also an experience coming to a church that you don't know very well and there's faces you're not familiar with. You've got to kind of pay attention to how people do things, maybe a little bit differently to your church. One time last year I was at a church um, that I hadn't been to much and sharing um, something from the Word and the basket passed me by so I, I put some cash in it and handed it to the man who was collecting and he looked at me funny and I noticed it was full of all the plastic uh, disposable... <laughs> communion cups and I was oh, oh well, that's okay we'll we'll get there together but it's also encouraging when you go to a new place and you see this um this passion for God's word that I can see here and and you see that these people that you've never met are actually your family we're we're united in our love of Jesus and in our passion for the bible we're one body and so I hope you can be encouraged by me today in that same way, even though you don't know me. Um, Thanks for already having the passage read from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. You can turn there if you want. And I won't read it again, but I'll give you a little context on this, this passage. What was going on? Peter and John, you probably heard a couple weeks ago, they, they've been praying in the temple and they healed a man that was born lame from birth. They saw him and they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man who had never walked, he'd never even stood before, he gets up and he's leaping around, he's jumping for joy. Can you imagine how that would feel to have these legs that suddenly work? When I was, uh, I don't know, about 14 in uh, youth group, all of us boys were pretty hyperactive and we just we played basketball and every youth group we'd just jump around and be silly and probably annoy everybody and there was a bit of the roof that stuck out and you could run and if you're high enough you could tap the roof and slam your hand into it and we did that over and over just feeling all this energy of a 14 year old and then the youth pastor said oh look there's all these fingerprints up there now and he had us clean that off but that's how this guy must have felt this joy at at having legs that had never worked he's not just going to stand there now he's going to leap and praise God and The people saw that, and Peter took that opportunity to preach to the crowd. The second sermon from the book of Acts. Then he gets taken into custody and held overnight, and he gets questioned in today's passage by these leaders. It's the first persecution, actually, in the book of Acts. And this is all happening pretty recently after the death and resurrection of Jesus, about six or seven weeks later, I think. The passage started with, while they were speaking. And that's referring to the sermon that Peter's just spoken where he said that Jesus was this one that Moses predicted. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15. Remember when Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And then Stephen Remember Stephen from Acts, a few chapters later, he also references that Jesus is this prophet that Moses prophesied when he says, 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Listen to him just before he's martyred, just before he's murdered for his gospel message. Of course, the people that Peter was talking to, they weren't listening. They didn't listen to Jesus either. They didn't listen to Stephen and they tried to kill Jesus and silence this message, but be encouraged Things look bad sometimes, but the gospel message will continue. It won't be silenced. Things look bad to me when I look at my Google um, news feed or scroll through Twitter. Things don't look good for Stephen when he's preaching and people are reaching for stones. But the gospel message will continue. We know how it all ends, right? We've read parts of Revelation and see how it ends and how God is glorified. But what, what actually was Peter preaching? I've got three points and they're all, uh, they're all the letter C, so that's easy to remember. And the first point of what Peter's preaching is just the content, the message, the content of what he's saying. He got in trouble for preaching. He gets taken into custody, held overnight. They bring him in for interrogation. And what does he do? He starts preaching again, another message. This is amazing. And what's he preaching? What's the content? Well, he's preaching the gospel. Specifically, he's proclaiming Jesus, it says in verse 2. Preaching must involve the gospel or it's not really preaching. It's just moralizing. It's just Sunday school teaching or inspiring content. It's like uh, on the way here, we saw a rugby field and I told my girls, imagine playing rugby Without the ball. It's just a bunch of form and uh, pointless movement. That's what preaching is without the gospel, without the story of what Jesus has done. Some sermons I've heard you could substitute Jesus, if they even include Jesus in the sermon, for any inspiring figure or Buddha or Muhammad and get much the same moral lesson, but without the gospel showing us our need and showing us how much we are loved. It's it's just relying on our skill and our rhetoric. Unless we preach Jesus, Tim Keller says, rather than a set of morals of the story or timeless principles or good advice, we will never truly allow people to understand, love, and obey the word of God. So let me remind you guys I don't know you that well, but let me remind you, as Paul does, remind you of the gospel preached to you. You've heard this in 1 Corinthians 15, preached to you, which you received. You've you've accepted this, in which you stand. You should live by this gospel, and which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word, to never forsake this life-giving preaching that Peter does, this gospel proclaiming of Jesus. And then apply this message to yourselves, to your lives. It's not just the first rung on the ladder of your faith, the gospel, and then you move on to deeper things. Rather, it's like the center of the wheel with the spokes coming out and your lives should be revolving around this gospel and always coming back to it. It should be something which can change your lives. I don't know what problems you have or what joys you have. But the gospel applies to that and changes how you see everything. 
Who was Peter teaching this to, this content, this content of proclaiming Jesus and the gospel? Well, he was teaching the people, it says, and in verse 10 it also says, let it be known to all of you leaders and to all the people of Israel. The gospel is for everyone. That's why we should be passionate about missions, and I think you guys are. For those who have never heard this and have little chance of hearing this, it's for them as well. That's why we're tra- uh, passionate about our work as well. I, I was sharing with a nomad one time. He hadn't heard hardly anything. All he knew about Christianity was, was this, he told me, just, just that. They do this sometimes. And he asked me, so this, this Jesus, is, does he live in Australia or America? And we can kind of laugh at that. It's funny, but it's also tragic how little people know about this good news that we have. How does, Pe- how does Peter share this content? Well, he preaches courageously. He confronts like a prophet of old, like Nathan confronting David for the murder that he had committed. But now Peter is confronting these leaders, these Pharisees, for the murder they committed of the actual king, the son of David, Jesus. Imagine this, Peter is in their midst, and what they would do, they would have sort of a a court where all the leaders surrounded in a semicircle, the ones they were interrogating. But he turns this makeshift court on its head. He was being judged, but now he turns it on them, and he turns the tables. He says, you must be judged by the truth of God's word, like all of us. If Jesus is healing lame people, then he's still alive vindicated by God and you are culpable of his death under God's judgment in a much more serious way than Peter was under the judgment of these leaders. If Peter's guilty of breaking their rules, they're guilty of making rules that break and go against God's rules. And notice this, we can learn from this too, Peter doesn't apologize, does he? Or say sorry for preaching the gospel. He just gets right back into it where he left off. Peter's not ashamed like he was six or seven weeks ago. Remember on the night of Jesus' crucifixion when Jesus was on trial, when Jesus was interrogated by some of these same people, Caiaphas and the others. What did Peter do? Well, he denied Jesus. He ran. He abandoned his Savior. But now look at Peter. He's not running, he's not denying, he's proclaiming, he's standing firm, he's preaching the gospel. It's a big change in a short time. So what has changed in Peter's life in this six or seven weeks time? The big change is the gospel has happened. He's seen it with his own eyes and it has affected him and given him the courage he needs to proclaim this good news. The gospel is also life-changing for all of us, right? We were those same ones who denied Jesus, who denied him in our lives, in our actions, in our words. But we can proclaim now and invite others to follow Jesus. We were fearful. We were ashamed, even enemies. The Bible says such were some of you. But now we remember the gospel and what it says about Jesus, what he's done for us. And his love for us so we can be courageous and humbly proclaim this to other people. 
Never move on or neglect this gospel. Remind yourselves of this. Notice also in in this content that Peter backs it up with the scripture. Right? He quotes from Deuteronomy 18, from Isaiah 43 and 44, from Leviticus 23. If we aren't using the scripture in our sharing, in our defense of the faith, it'll just be based on our skill as speakers and our pet topics and the zeitgeist of the times, the fads that we're in. We should be focused on the word like the early church was. Acts chapter 6 says they devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And then after Stephen was stoned and killed for his preaching, they were scattered and it said, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love that phrase. May we also go about preaching the word wherever we are. The content also included preaching about salvation. This is, of course, a part of the gospel. In verse 12, it talks about salvation to all men. And, and this word here means, means people in general. It's for everyone. What is this salvation that it's talking about, though? Is it just healing of, of the lame man, physical miracles? Sometimes salvation was used to refer to kings who would save through victory, through battle, save their people. And this fits with the psalm that Peter quotes. I'll get back to that later. But Peter's talking about more than that. He's talking about blessing from God, he says. He talks about resurrection from the dead and blotting out of sins. Remember, Jesus also healed a man who couldn't walk. In Mark chapter 2, there was the paralytic that got brought before Jesus. His friends brought him in on a stretcher. And Jesus, noticing their faith, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Remember that? And then the Pharisees who were there, maybe some of the same scribes that were in this place, in this uh, interrogation of Peter here, they grumble and think to themselves, how can he say your sins are forgiven? Only God can say that. That's blasphemy. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he says, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And so you'll know that I have the power to forgive sins, to give this kind of eternal salvation. He tells the man, rise up and take your bed and walk. And it says, immediately he rose up, picked up his bed and went out before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Isn't that amazing? This is the kind of salvation that Jesus promises, that Peter preaches And it's salvation in Jesus alone. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The gospel is inherently exclusive. It's an offense. But it's also inclusive because anybody can accept this one way. Anybody can choose this only way. So how shall we escape if we neglect Such a great salvation. That's what Peter's preaching. The content. The gospel. Proclaiming Jesus. Salvation. He's using the scripture. Well, what happens when he preaches that and he shares that? That's the consequence. My second point. What happens when we preach? When we share? 
with our friends and family. This encourages us, but it also prepares us for what will come. I read one writer, he said, In later Judaism, there was a belief that in certain situations, one was warned first for the first offense and given a minor punishment before a more serious second violation was sought. And this included things like blasphemy and a disobedient son. I I was just thinking, imagine if we were called before a court for disobedient children. Might be a... Anyway, we'll we'll move on from that. But Peter's called in for blasphemy, probably. And the opposition comes from all different people. It comes from the priests, the elders, the scribes, the scribes who in all their study totally missed the point of the Bible. The captain of the temple, that's like the the temple police. They didn't allow any messianic expectations that Rome wouldn't like. They didn't want the cultural and political peace disturbed by radical ideas. Doesn't that sound familiar? May we never be shifted away from unchanging biblical truth by the ever-changing ideology of our times and our rootless culture. This is our anchor right here. There was also opposition from the Sadducees. They were against this idea of the resurrection because it went against their faculties of reason and their superior academic knowledge. And there was also opposition from the priestly family. It mentions Annas, Caiaphas, and the others. But this is sort of the who's who in Jerusalem at the time, excepting the Romans, all opposing the gospel. And so Peter and John have little choice. They pack it up, they go home, And they decide to live outside the world in a safely removed enclave with the few people who agree with them. Because after all, nothing's going to change and there's no hope anyway. And they're not really political people. And that's how this. No, that's not how the story ends, is it? No, they keep preaching. They don't give up. And they consider this opposition as opportunity to proclaim Jesus directly to the leaders of the people that they represent. Imagine yourselves being hauled in before whatever leader, Dan Andrews or Albanese or Mark McGowan, and having that opportunity to proclaim the gospel directly to the ones in charge. May we also be courageous like Peter in the face of mobs and governments restricting the gospel. What do they ask Peter? And John, they say, two questions. What power did you do this with, first of all? They don't argue about the actual miracle, do they? It's it's indisputable that man is standing with them. and They know this man. Everyone knows him. It says in verse 16, it was a notable sign which cannot be denied. Maybe they thought there was some sorcery involved because they say, what power did you do this with? And Jesus was accused of using the devil's power in his healings. But they couldn't deny what happened. This man, it says, he was over 40 years old. I like that sufficiently vague way of saying your age, that I'm also over 40 years old. But their response is not rational or intellectual. It's just reflective of a refusal to see what God has done. What power, they say, and they also say, what name did you do this in? This is the authority. 
It certainly wasn't under their authority, was it? Or their jurisdiction. And that's the embarrassing thing. In the country that we worked in for many years, the problem wasn't necessarily people coming to believe in Jesus. The problem the government had was that it wouldn't be under their control, under their authoritarian authoritarian um, force and power. That's what they didn't like. And what is this name and what is this power? Peter answers, it's Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, the same one they crucified, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter says, you guys crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. That's confronting. You guys sinned, but God made it right. You did evil, but God turned your evil into good news. Isn't that amazing? Throughout this opposition, God gives Peter and John and the others the words to say, and we have that promise as well. It says, none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict you. I will give you a mouth and I will give you wisdom. That's one of the consequences, the opposition. The other consequence we can remember is the fruit, the growth, the changed lives, like what your story talked about, your testimony. The gospel, this Bible, it's effective, it's powerful. It says 5,000 men came to believe, and this word actually means only men. So we can add to that the women and the children, maybe 15,000 people came to believe this message. Remember the progression in Acts chapter 1, there's 120. Then in Acts chapter 2, 41, you talked about two weeks ago, there's 3,000 souls, it says. And now we've got 5,000 men. I don't know what the total number is, but the point is God's word will accomplish that which he sends it for, like we read in Isaiah. We worked in a pretty hard area. It's very rocky hard spiritual soil but there was fruit you guys live in a hard area melbourne is hard victoria is difficult australia in general is a difficult place but we can cling to the promises and trust that if we are faithful and courageous and proclaim jesus in the gospel there will be fruit that's the two consequences opposition and fruit and we've seen the content But now I want to shift gears and finish up with this. The final C is actually from what what Jesus, what Peter quoted about Jesus, this verse. And we just sang the song about it. I love it. It fits in. In verse 11, Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And the audience Would have understood that back then, but we might not understand what this is even talking about. So let's talk about this. What does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? It comes from Psalm 118. So listen to some of Psalm 118 and keep your mind on Jesus and think about how he fulfills this and how he answers this. It says, I'll just read parts of it. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. It says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. 
It says in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. It says in 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. He has not given me over to death. And then it says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. It says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter. Remember Jesus coming through the gates of Jerusalem. It says in verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I love that phrase. The background to this psalm that talked about Jesus as cornerstone, it was a kind of a triumphant victory song that the leaders would have recognized. One writer says it was related to a literal military victory won by a king, and it would have been sung when the victorious kings of old came back from campaigning, and the people would meet them and sing this song. Imagine that. Being back in those days, imagine the threat, the enemy marauding on the outskirts of the land or gathering and waiting with warriors to meet the Israelites for the showdown. Imagine the king gathering the men, the soldiers in formation, leaving Jerusalem with their shields polished and their swords sharpened. And then think about the weight. Would they return with salvation and save us from our enemies? Then the good news. Did you hear? The king won. And then the return of the king with victory and spoils of war, entering the city gates and then giving thanks in the temple and the people singing this psalm together. It's the psalm of the righteous but rejected king. And this song, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's all quoted in the, that week before the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's Palm Sunday when they sing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Imagine that. They're singing this very psalm that we are celebrating this Palm Sunday today. They shout, Hosanna, which means save us. But a week later, they'd be shouting, crucify him. All four Gospels use this psalm. And we already read from Zechariah 9, which John also references that wonderful part that talks about Jesus arriving with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Isn't it amazing when we remember Jesus and how he fulfilled all these prophecies? Jesus as the cornerstone. Jesus himself referred to himself this way as cornerstone. He tells this parable, remember, about the master of a house who plants a vineyard and lets it grow and leases it out to tenants. And when it comes time to harvest, what does he do? He sends his servants and they beat some of them and they stone and kill some of them. So he says, okay, I'll send my son. And he sends his own son and they see him coming, these evil tenants, and say, now's our chance. Let's kill him and get the inheritance for ourselves. And Jesus used that that, uh, parable to refer to himself. And he says, 
in verse 42 of Matthew 21. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit. Uh, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is obviously talking about himself and his death and crucifixion in this parable. And these people are the very ones who rejected Jesus. And now they are rejecting Peter and his message. There's actually so much significance to this idea of Jesus as the cornerstone. It's all throughout the the Bible and the New Testament. It shows Jesus is foundational. He's central in what we believe and important. He's guiding and he's our standard. It calls him the plumb line in Isaiah. It's also community building. Ephesians talks about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, and we are joined to that structure, built as a body of Christ, as, as the church. In First Peter, it also talks about the living stone that was rejected, and it says that you also are like living stones, precious in God's sight. So, we can become a part of this community when we accept Jesus as the cornerstone. But there's a choice, isn't there? It warns us that if we don't accept him, he becomes a different kind of stone. He becomes the stone of stumbling that we are crushed against. And we have that choice to accept or reject. Are we now a part of this living building, this community, or are we choosing another way? Remember Peter. Peter himself called the rock, and he is built on this rock, the rock of Jesus. Remember how he denied and rejected Jesus. But then he saw the gospel. He saw the crucifixion and the resurrection. And now Jesus is his cornerstone that he builds everything on. We can finish with this. We can be encouraged with this idea to remember that they persecuted Jesus. They persecuted Peter and John and Stephen when he was stoned. They will persecute you. This is normal in the Christian life around the world. They laid hands on Jesus. They laid hands on Peter and John. Jesus says in Luke 21, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus was questioned. Peter gets questioned. You will be questioned. Use that opposition as opportunity. Jesus was questioned and interrogated and judged, and he offered no answer. He was silent. Peter was judged and questioned, and he offered Jesus as his answer. We will have to answer for things. If not in this life, in the next life we will be judged and questioned. We can also offer Jesus as our answer, our chief cornerstone, our foundation and salvation, so we won't be rejected we can say we never saw anything like this because our triumphant and victorious king has come the one we were waiting for has returned from the dead returning to us and we can say it is marvelous in our eyes let's pray
God, we thank you and we are moved by what you've done for us. It's marvelous in our eyes. You are the chief cornerstone and we want to build our lives on you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.